Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Edric Show. I am your host, Edric Jerome. This is the place for intelligent conversation with interesting people. Please hit that subscribe button, hit that like button, let us know how we're doing as I continue to grow this thing from the ground up. You can also catch The Edric Show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all of your favorite online streaming platforms. Very special guest today, uh, very distinguished guest today. My guest is Bob Delaney. Bob is the author of the new book, Heroes Are Human, Lessons in Resilience, Courage, and Wisdom from the COVID Front Lines. In addition to being a very talented writer, Bob has had successful careers in a variety of interesting fields. In the 1970s, he worked as a New Jersey State Trooper. He went undercover for three years, infiltrating the mafia, which led to prosecution of some of the most notorious mafia figures. Following that, he transitioned to a successful 25-year career as a top NBA official, working several playoff games and NBA Finals games, and was the winner of the 2014 Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame Manny Jackson Human Spirit Award. He is an internationally recognized expert on post-traumatic stress and his contributions to PTS awareness and support to military officials and their families has been recognized with many honors and proclamations, including the U.S. Army Outstanding Civil Service Medal in 2011. More recently, he has become deeply involved with the prestigious Harvard Global Mental Health Initiative, which focuses on traumas and psychological burdens experienced throughout the world. Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you, Edric. My pleasure. Um, let me start with a general question first. Um, the impact of the COVID pandemic will be felt for years, uh, if not generations to come. When did you first become aware of the large scale impact of the pandemic and its effect on the global population? As, as COVID began, it struck me as I drove by hospitals that there were signs everywhere that heroes work here. And with the work that I've been doing with the military, law enforcement, first responders, firefighters, over the past four decades, I, I know that anyone that has that title of hero does not like it. So it, it, it kind of created a thirst for understanding the healthcare community and what they were going through, thinking they're not going to feel like heroes with the amount of death that's taking place. Uh, it, 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 hero, when we give that word to someone, I think it's for the rest of society to look for an answer, that some hero is going to solve our problem for us, rather than understanding that those who are on the front lines are ordinary folks doing extraordinary things. Hmm. Um, how did you become interested in post-traumatic stress and, and the impact it can have on individuals and their families? Edric, as you mentioned, I, I worked undercover uh, for three years life, I became another person back in the 70s and infiltrated traditional organized crime, the mafia, La Cosa Nostra, whatever term we want to give to it. It was the Genovese and Bruno crime families that I was focused on. And the result of that experience after three years of my life, uh, they first at, at first they told me it was going to be six months when, when I signed on. And uh, I was a general road duty trooper, got a call from division headquarters and met with one of the lieutenants and in a very secretive way. Um, was put into this undercover role. And I'm thinking six months, that sounds pretty cool. I mean, I'll go undercover, you know, selfishly, I'll probably get a detective's badge out of it, you know. And I look back and I think, what a, uh, what a uh, thought. Like we were gonna have to organize crime in the state of New Jersey in six months. We're 
move on to the next thing. We knew very quickly that wasn't happening. So that three years of my life created post-traumatic stress experience for me. And um, while I was being told I did brave work or I was a tough guy or heroic work, people did not see me walking around my house with my gun out, pushing shower curtains back because I was paranoid they were coming to get me. And I didn't know how to express the, what I refer to as emotional violence inside of me that was I was experiencing. So I became a student of post-traumatic stress. And I had a lot of folks help me through what I was experiencing and that emotional upheaval within me. So that drove me for the past four decades to be immersed into the post-trauma world. Uh, I want to shift now and, and let's get into the book. Um, uh, which honors and shares the personal stories from frontline workers who um, continue to be affected by the pandemic. Um, what motivated you to write the book and why was it so important to make sure uh, that their stories are heard? Yeah, I think that storytelling is a big part of who we are. You know, if we look back, um, the town prior was how we got information. And so storytelling creates emotion. And I believe we learn through emotion. And so I felt like uh, Dave Scheiber and I have uh, worked together. He's a co-author on the book, and uh, Dave and I have worked together for, for years. He did a story on my undercover uh, work back in the day when he was working for the St. Pete Times as, as a uh, newspaper writer. And it struck me that he didn't try to tell his version of the story. He told my story, and he allowed me to have the voice. And so I, I asked him if he would be interested in doing my, my book about my life and about that undercover experience. And now we've we've teamed up and uh, we wrote another book called Surviving the Shadows, A Journey of Hope into Post-Traumatic Stress. And I underline the reason for Surviving the Shadows. I wanted that title because I believe we all have shadows in our lives at times. But I tell folks, never be afraid of a shadow because in order for a shadow to exist, that means there has to be light nearby. So it's our responsibility to ourselves and to each other to get to that light. This conversation, the more that I have it, the more that I realize what is personal is universal. If you're feeling something, I've probably felt the same thing. And if we share each other's story with each other, we give permission for that conversation to be had. And we also validate our feelings so we do not feel we are alone. So these were the motivations to say healthcare workers are at war with an invisible enemy. And I've been working with folks that have been at war at foreign soil. And so I wanted to find out and draw the parallels. And, and you've identified some of those parallels. So maybe you can speak to a couple of them between healthcare workers and some of the, the, the research you found with uh, folks in the military. Yeah, I, I think that um, probably the, the, the largest one that I came to understand was something that took me a long time to understand, and that is Courage is not absent of fear. Courage takes place despite the fear that you experience. And so in, in having deep, honest conversations with military members about their experiences uh, at, in war or on, on, on the battlefield, they were kind of the similar conversations that was happening with the healthcare community. They also had fear. They were afraid. They never had to be afraid of bringing cancer home. And now they had to be afraid that they would infect their own families. They never had to hold the hands of someone dying because usually family members would be bedside at that point. 
And now they had to do that. And then they had to set up FaceTime calls and Zoom calls for people for final goodbyes. Um, this, this was underlined to me over and over by nurses and doctors and healthcare workers. And yet it was kind of like the same conversations I was having with our military. And I'll go one, I'll get, I'll share one story of a nurse that explained to me, she knew she was going through tough times. She was an ICU nurse. She was working 12 to 14 hour shifts and just was exhausted. And she wanted to get away from it all. Went out on a lake with her husband on their boat and just to chill out and have a, a relaxing day and not think about everything she'd experienced. And as they pulled in at the end of the day, she went to the front of the boat to tie it off. And she started crying uncontrollably. And Edric, what happened? She saw a small boat on the dock that was covered with a tarp. And it was the same color of the body bags that she had patients into. And she remembered every one of their faces, remembered every one of their names. That's the same kind of conversations I would have with soldiers, triggers that come back and bring you back to the current time that you were experiencing the trauma. Uh, sir, I can't go over a bridge without checking for an IED, so I'm late everywhere I go. Sir, I wanted a bond with my kids. I went for a walk after I came home from Afghanistan, and we we're out walking around. My son kicked a can, and I went ballistic and yelled and screamed because where I came from, if you kick something, you may not come home. And I felt like two inches tall in, in my son's eyes. Uh, sir, I, I was tasked with taking care of the enemy, and I'm talking to my family like I talked to the enemy. And so these were experiences that were being told to me by both groups. And in my view, they're experiencing the same emotions. Um, what are some of the lingering effects of PTS uh, and how would someone know if they're suffering from it? I, I appreciate that you said PTS uh, because more often than not in our society, one of the most loosely used terms is PTSD. We, we throw it around like it's, uh, and, and I say to folks and to your listeners as well, you don't get PTSD from Starbucks getting your order wrong. Um, you know, we, we're saying and using that in a very loose term. Post-traumatic stress is a human condition. It's been around forever. Sophocles wrote two plays about the warrior not knowing how to act after coming home from battle. After the uh, Civil War, we refer to it as soldier's heart. After World War I, shell shock. World War II, battle fatigue. It was known as flashbacks after the Korean and Vietnam Wars. Now we refer to it as post-traumatic stress, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, some of the telltale signs are, well, first you have to experience a traumatic event. So it's the experiencing of a trauma. It's happening in Turkey right now uh, with, with the earthquake. The most common cause for post-trauma is an automobile accident. After someone goes through an automobile accident, there's a trauma experience that they have that causes for paranoia that causes for hypervigilance, that causes for uh, isolation, uh, anger levels. These are telltale signs of what takes place. And so for me, after I surfaced from the undercover work, if you came to my home, you would think I loved art because there was a different painting on the wall every, every month or every week. And the reason, Patrick, I was a wall puncher. I would become so frustrated, like a little child that didn't know why I was angry, but the frustration level was so high, I would punch the wall, and then there would be a hole in the wall. And I'm the kind of guy that doesn't know how to do any of that spackling stuff. Or, or any, so I'd go down a Walmart and buy a cheap painting and put 
it up on the wall to cover the hole. And how prophetic that was because it really was hiding all that was taking place inside of me and inside of my home. And so uh, uh, to me, this is an important conversation to have. We need to normalize our conversation about post-trauma, about mind health. I use every medical sounding term and remove it. From my view, we have over-medicalized this conversation and we scare people away from having it. And I, I hasten to add, I do not mean that we do not need the medical side of the house. We do. We have tremendous resources. We just have to figure out how to build stronger bridges between the resources and those who need it. So speaking about this conversation, normalizing it, I refer to it as mind health versus mental health, because I think mental health conjures up mental illness in the subconscious. So these are important conversations to, to be had. Um, let me now ask you about, I mean, you reference mental health or mind health, but let me ask you, uh, tell me about the Harvard Global Mental Health Initiative. How did you get involved? What are some of the goals? And um, what's the purpose of the initiative? Yeah, uh, Dr. Malika is the director, Dr. Richard Malika, uh, the director of the Harvard Global Mental Health Trauma Recovery Program. And he's been working in the area of refugees for, for decades. And, and, and Dr. Malika has a very simple statement. He said that trauma is inescapable in life. And what a powerful statement. So we need to do education and awareness, and that's what takes place within the uh, program. And, and think about, we have education awareness works. We, we, we did it with HIV AIDS. We did it with tobacco. We've done it with drugs. We've done it with alcohol. And we move the bar. Doesn't mean we eliminate the thing, right? Uh, when I present, I use the uh, example of, uh, I ask the audience if they remember the Andy Griffin show. And I, I tell the young folks, yeah, you saw it on Nickelodeon. I saw it live. <laughs> Remember Otis the Drunk? He was a funny dude. He'd let himself into the cell on Friday night after getting drunk up. And then he'd let himself out. And he'd go over and have breakfast with Andy and Barney uh, in the morning. But it wasn't until the Mothers Against Drunk Drivers help us understand that was not behavior to laugh at, that we moved the bar in our country. And so we didn't eliminate drunk driving, but we made a dent. And so these are the same conversations that I think need to be had. And there are small wins that come. We're making changes. Think about Simone Biles in the Simone Biles situation. We all became educated as to what twisties was and then understood that here is a woman who's going to be 12 to 15 feet in the air. And she is not confident that she can get her legs underneath it yet. Two or three Olympics ago, she probably would have been vilified as being unpatriotic because she didn't participate or she should have toughened it out. We're becoming more aware. We're becoming more educated in this area. That, I think, needs to be done for the healthcare community because, Edric, what I found, they are very good at taking care of all of us. They're not very good at taking care of themselves. Very well said. And uh, just, of course, you know, we talked briefly uh, before, but, you know, my affinity and shout out to all of the healthcare heroes out there who continue to uh, do this work, this necessary work. So thank you all for for your service in the healthcare world. Um, if I can, um, can I ask you a basketball question, given that? Sure, you were, absolutely. Uh, so, yes. so that's, you know, as I mentioned in the opening, you were a stellar referee for, for many, many years. You refereed some of the greatest NBA players in the history of basketball. Um, and this is just coming from me as a fan. So, um, 
it seems now that every call is being scrutinized uh, by slow motion replay and TVs, and they've got multiple angles. So what's your view of the current replay system that's being used? And how can the human element of refereeing be balanced with the need for getting every call correct? Is that possible? Yeah, great question, because uh, I always see sports as a microcosm of our society. And um, so people ask me about, do you think the players are complaining more than when you were refereeing back in the day? And I think, yeah, because we all believe we have a voice through social media. And so that's become part of who we are as a society. And I think that this want for perfection when it comes to sports, and we have 80 inch screens in our homes now. And so we see all the and replays. The referees have to make these decisions in real time. They are not allowed to go and look at every play. It's what's called a trigger that allows them in a rule to be able to go over. My belief is that the there is always going to be a human element to it. Um, but in the game-ending situations, uh, we need to find a way to allow the referees to see what the rest of the world gets to see a hundred times, and they have to make a decision on it once. For example, if you're if, if for the fans that um, uh, recently LeBron was playing in a game up in Boston, oh and yeah, basket right at, at, towards the end of the game was foul. There's no doubt about it, but. That wasn't a play that allows them to go over and review it. And so my belief is that game-ending situations should be replay uh, triggers. They should be allowed to go see game-ending situations in order to – the whole goal is to get the calls right. It, 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 and so those are things that we have the technology. We're going to have to move the bar and figure out ways to – because a, a team cannot – recover from an incorrect call with three seconds left in a game or two seconds left in a game. They can recover from an incorrect call that was made in the second quarter. Right. And so those are not plays. We don't have to slow the game down and watch every little play, but game ending situations, I think are important. And, 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 and obviously the two, three and, and, and some other things that are there. I'm a big fan of replay as an official. I like to be able to see it again, uh, rather than just live, with one ball because I I've been in those situations. I had a play uh, back in the day before there was replay. And before we had all these red lights around, it was just one little red light. And uh, we were down in Miami and New York was playing. And I wiped out a basket on Allen Houston. That was good. And um, it caused for the Knicks not to be in a home court situation for the playoffs because the game that I had was on Easter Sunday. It was in April. And uh, I remember I had the first game in the playoff in Indiana, and they were playing the Knicks. And, and Spike Lee was sitting courtside, and he's yelling at me that because of the call that I made, they were on the road instead of being home. And I said, Spike, I've seen every one of your movies. And they ain't all hits either, brother. <laughs> Unbelievable story, man. Um well, I can only imagine uh, what you've seen, not only in your career as an NBA official, but also as your career uh, undercover and now your, your much needed work in the world of PTS. So I just want to personally thank you for taking the time to come on The Edge Show. And I really, really appreciate 
uh, you talking with me today. Edric, my honor, an absolute pleasure to be with you and to you and your audience, stay healthy, stay safe, take care of one another and take care of you too. Self-care does not mean selfish. Absolutely. Absolutely. This has been another edition of The Edric Show. I am your host, Edric Jerome. Our guest has been Mr. Bob Delaney. He is the author of the new book, Heroes Are Human, Lessons in Resilience, Courage, and Wisdom from the COVID Front Lines. Uh, it's available everywhere, Amazon, anywhere you can get your books, pretty much, correct? Yes, yes. So please check it out. And if people want more information about you, uh, is there a website they can go or where can they get more information about you? Yeah, thank you. Uh, DelaneyConsultants.com uh, and um, also HeroesAreHuman.com. Excellent. Excellent. Bob Delaney, again, thank you so much for being on The Edric Show. This is the place for intelligent conversation with interesting people. Please hit that subscribe button. Give us a like. Let me know how I'm doing as I continue to grow this show from the ground up. We appreciate you tuning in and we'll catch you on the next episode.